a philosopher theoretically does try and get a synoptic view of the world, tries to stand back and see things. The trouble is the view is often featureless. So if you're talking about matter, very much in that view, it says matter equally mind. So as you get more and more synoptic in philosophy, so you get less and less content. In contrast, something like poetry, um, Louis McNeese uh, said that the point of poetry is to celebrate the drunken variousness of things. So you want to get hold of the absolute incredible richness, even that can be unpacked out of something small. And there was a nice dialogue between Goethe and somebody whose name I've forgotten. Uh, and, and somebody said to Goethe, you know, why do you write these occasional verses? You know, verses for people's marriage and verses on the birth of a child. He said, you know, why don't you go for the big story? And he said, well, look, if I write a poem, and it's a good poem, and it's a true poem about a blackbird singing, I'll strike to the heart of creation. So there is that kind of hope that in poetry, by focusing beautifully and honestly and sincerely on something small, you will get a kind of deep picture, possibly big picture. I think one needs both philosophy and poetry, having said that. You need the big picture, which may be a bit of a desert, a desert of concepts, mind, mind, matter, emergence and all that sort of stuff. And you need poetry just to really absolutely unpeel your gaze at some particular thing and perhaps connect it with other things. Raymond Tallis has a list of accomplishments that would take me far too long to outline here. He's had a very successful medical career. He has been a philosopher, a writer, a poet, a cultural critic. Um, philosophically, he is interested in questions about understanding human nature, how humans are different from animals, uh, questions about mind, consciousness, personal identity. Um, philosophically, he holds a set of positions that are incredibly original. Um, he is both a champion of neuroscience, but also sort of skeptical of some of the limits of, of contemporary neuroscience and understanding mind and human experience. Um, he is by no means a theologian, but he is also very critical of people being dismissive of religion and the and perhaps the role that religion has in explaining human experience, um, all of which make for incredibly novel and interesting ideas to dive into. Uh, we talk about these problems, a little bit about transhumanism, and, and a bit about art, and the relationship between art and philosophy, or, or the possible relationship between art and philosophy. Um, here is my conversation with Raymond Tallis. What is the difficulty in trying to understand human beings? Well, the, the primary difficulty is we, we are ourselves human beings. So in order to try and understand ourselves, we've got to be able to turn the light back on ourselves. And that is extraordinarily difficult. Um, uh, I guess that's the primary problem. And the secondary problem is that we have to fight our way through existing ideas about what it is to be human being, whether they are religious ideas, naturalistic scientific ideas, and so on and so forth. So in addition to the fundamental barrier of trying to seize hold of yourself using only your own hands, there is the sort of uh, secondary barrier of trying to liberate oneself from the ways in which human beings have been understood uh, in the past and indeed in the present. So you take a very unique position between sort of not being entirely convinced by the naturalist scientific ideas uh, and their broad claims, but also not sort of succumbing to theological ideas or more exotic ideas in the philosophy mind. Um, so tell me about that. How did you come to take that position? Yes, certainly. I mean, it does seem for some people there are two options. One is to embrace a religious viewpoint, and the second is to embrace an entirely naturalistic viewpoint that essentially sees us as products of nature whose behavior is explained by natural laws, either the laws of matter or indeed the secondary laws of um, beasts and so on. And my view is that we are neither apes nor are we angels. And by the way, um, the claim that we are distant from apes is one that requires a lot of explanation and I very, very much hope we can talk about that in due course. But um, as a humanist, um, I've always been worried about my humanist colleagues who think basically their job is done when they've been rude about religion. And I think that's bonkers for two reasons. One is 
to be rude about religion is a very strange way of being a humanist because religion has been such a huge part of humanity, of both our glories and our miseries. So I think we have to take religion seriously and at the depth at which people who have religious beliefs take religion seriously. So if one's going to disagree with religion, one should disagree profoundly rather than superficially. So one has a duty to try to understand what it is that drives people to embrace religious beliefs. So as a humanist, I don't feel the job is done just when you've been rude about religion. Quite the contrary. On the other hand, um, I don't think that if we set aside religious understanding of ourselves, we're then obliged to embrace a purely naturalistic understanding of ourselves. Okay, we're not angels, but we're not apes either. And I think we've got to do two things. One is to actually look at the ways in which we are profoundly different from all other entities in the universe, including living entities, including our nearest animal kin, uh, the primates. So that, that's the first job. The second job is to say, okay, if you, Raymond Tallis, embrace Darwinism, for example, and I do, um, although I don't embrace Darwinitis, something we might discuss, if you embrace Darwinism, how are you going to explain how we got to be so different? So that's a second job uh, that we uh, need to do as humanists trying to arrive at a genuine humanist philosophy, one that reaches all the way down to metaphysics and ontology. So you mentioned Darwinitis and the idea of neuromania that you coined. Um, would you mind describing that? Certainly. I mean, it's important to make a difference, to highlight the difference between neuromania on the one hand and neuroscience on the other. All my research was in neuroscience, and I'm enormously impressed by my neuroscientific colleagues. There is an argument that neuroscience is the greatest science because it brings together all the other sciences. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? but it means that I have no problem with neuroscience. What I have a problem with is the claims of neuroscientists to say that what they find uh, in neuroscience, for example, by peering into the skulls of patients, uh, will enable us to understand our nature. The belief that we are explained by our brains is what I've called neuromania. So neuroscience, good, neuroscience, neuromania, bad. And, that, and the same distinction, kind of distinction, applies the difference between Darwinism and Darwinitis. Yes, I embrace Darwinian theory. Of course I would. When you think of the science that's emerged since 1859 on the origin of species, things that Darwin could not have imagined, like knowledge of continental drift, carbon dating, genomics, um, filling in the fossil record, all of those have supported his theory. So it's a pretty robust theory. Um, so one has to be it's appropriate to be to embrace Darwinism. But what Darwinism does, it doesn't say what it is to be Asha Khan or Raymond Tallis. It says, where do the organisms that sustain Asha Khan and Raymond Tallis come from? How do they arrive? So Darwinism has got a very good account of the emergence of the organism Homo sapiens, of which you and I are instances. What it doesn't do is to explain the nature of the persons, Asha and Raymond. And looking at the difference between the distance between the organism and the person is the first step to acknowledging that there's a difference between Darwinism that says how the organism arrived and Darwinitis that says basically Darwin ultimately can explain everything about us. It not only explains how centipedes came into being, but also why Mozart wrote his great operas. And that's where I dissent quite vigorously. Right. So there, there seem to be like a dividing line of things that that can't be explained or are difficult at present moment. Uh, and they seem to be consciousness, personhood, uh, first person subjective experience. Um, we can go on. But is there sort of a, a commonality there of, of phenomena that, that you see kind of at the limit of, of modern science, maybe principally? Yes. I mean, there is two sorts of challenges then, I think. One is indeed the fundamental metaphysical challenge of understanding the place of the mind in the cosmos. And if you start off with matter, explaining how mind or consciousness came out of matter. That's if you start in that place. In other words, it's the mystery of how what is became explicit as that it is. 
your thoughts, my thoughts, my awareness, your awareness, and so on. And I don't think we have the beginning of an answer to that. And we can talk about some non-answers, perhaps, if you wanted to. Um, but there is a perhaps lesser challenge and one that's more um, easy to take hold of, which is to say, okay, Talis, you say that human beings are fundamentally different from all other animals. But also, you embrace Darwinism. So you acknowledge the truths that biology reveals about ourselves. But you don't embrace biologism, the view that we're totally explained by biological processes. So what is your explanation of how you are so totally different, even from your nearest primate kin? Uh, you know, chimpanzees have many things in common with us. Um, people talk about having 98.4% of uh, DNA in common and so on. I'm not impressed by those figures, by the way. After all, as has often been pointed out, we share you know, 50% of our DNA with a banana and I ain't a banana, nor is you. Um, so we still have to have some kind of story about how we came to be so different. There was some kind of biological account of how you, we human beings have to an extraordinary degree distance ourselves from biology. Not completely, of course. I grew in my mother's uterus by biological processes. I was brought into being by biological processes. And alas, I will be extinguished by biological processes. So at any given stage, uh, at any given moment, I'm still, as it were, um, likely to be profoundly affected by my biology. But my CV is something totally different from the processes going on in my body. So we have to explain that. How did we, by what biological means, did we get so distant from biology? And uh, one of the most unoriginal thoughts I've ever had, and the competition for that accolade is quite fierce, but one of the most um, unoriginal thoughts I've ever had is that the hand had a central role in our becoming distant uh, from our nearest primate kin. I say it's unoriginal because it was per, per first put forward in the, um, I think it was by Anaxagoras, uh, five century BC. So I'm just catching up on, you know, was it two and a half thousand years later or whatever. Um, but essentially the hand is an extraordinary organ. Um, the story begins, you might say, or the just so story begins, uh, perhaps about five million years ago. I wasn't there at the time, despite my appearance, but uh, about five million years ago, um, when due to climate change, um, basically the jungles were flattened and our hominid ancestors moved into the plains, the savannah. And as one of the consequences of this is we assume the upright position. That had very important consequences. One is we can move faster, of course. Secondly, suddenly vision, the most epistemic of the senses uh, becomes central to our sensory experience. Our head becomes a watchtower. But the third and perhaps most interesting is it liberated our hands from the job of being just a locomotive prop uh, to being a delicate explorer of space and a communicator and so on. That phrase comes from the neurologist, the neuroscientist C.S. Sherrington. So we suddenly have a hand that's liberated but the hand that is liberated is quite different from the hand or the paws of our nearest primate kin. And it's different in two very important respects. And you may be, this story may have a familiarity too. But the first is that there is full opposition between the thumb and the index finger, which utterly transforms the versatility of the hand. And the other is fractionated finger movement. Fingers are able to move independently of one another to a degree that's not seen in uh, other species. Um, and in particular, that liberates the index finger for becoming a pointer, which is a very important communicator, and also uh, allows us an enormous variety of pinch grips that are quite different from the power grips that you see in the paw, as it were. Um, and you may say, okay, well, that's a nice bit of kit we got, but that doesn't explain the profound difference between us and uh, chimpanzees. Well, I've already pointed or noted the role of the hand as an organ of communication. And one of the most striking aspects of that is the hand as a pointer. Pointing is absolutely central to both the evolution of communication, gestures become ultimately give way to language, but also in our growth of our, of our capacity to 
uh, communicate with our, our fellow our fellows. I don't know. Have you got any? Have you had children, or have you got little children? No, I don't know. Oh well, one of the lovely things you'll see is in the first year of their life they start pointing, baby explaining. Babies are explaining everything to you pretty early on in life, and the thing they do is they point to things, um, and that is a way of joining our consciousness together. It's what the philosophers would call shared intentionality, which is the seed of the joined and collective intentionality that forms the basis of the human world. The interesting thing is pointing is a human universal, but um, essentially pointing is not seen in the way we do it in any other creature. Um, chimpanzees, or rather primates in captivity, sometimes use a kind of pointing called uh, imperative pointing. It's a sort of grasping, gimme. But the desire to share your consciousness with others, so-called declarative pointing, is unique to human beings. So then we have a hand that's liberated to be a very important organ of communication. The number of gestures is countless, and there is good evidence that gestures, as it were, were the predecessors to the emergence of language, out of which we have woven uh, the human world. But finally, there's something else. My relationship to my hand, because it is, as it were, so versatile, because I can choose the way I use it, in a very specific way, essentially it becomes a, what Aristotle called the tool of tools. It becomes a primordial tool. It becomes a tool that, as it were, inspires the very idea of mediated agency and of myself as an agent. And I talked at great length about it in a rather long book on the hand, which indicates the ways in which our relationship to our hand transforms our relationship to our body into that of a conscious subject and a conscious agent. So that's my just so story based in biology of how we came to be so different and how biologically we started deviating from a biological prescription from our life, how our CV is quite different uh, from that of any other creatures. This is one thing I really like about your thought where often people to distinguish between humans and animals, often people appeal to to great works of literature or philosophy, very high human achievements. But but one thing you point out is that you don't really need to go that far to see the distinctiveness of human beings. You just need to look as far as simple rituals that, that children do uh, during development. Absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that, because it's, yes, people do look to say, well, you know, chimpanzees don't do maths and they don't write operas. Well, most human people, most people like me are lousy at maths and certainly don't write operas. It's, it's our differences are wall to wall. And it's the way we do very basic things. For example, going to the toilet. We're the only creatures who use toilet paper. Okay? We're the only creatures who are bargain over the price of toilet paper. We're the only creatures who absolutely, uh, uh, shall we say, um, store, hoard toilet paper when we, and, and that shows a completely different relationship to our own functions compared with that of other animals. So you don't need to look to operas, just look to toilet paper to know how utterly different we are from other creatures. So on the, on the topic of consciousness, human and animal consciousness, uh, consciousness studies is very fragmented, uh, but there does seem to be a bit of a consensus building amongst the few available theories that, that consciousness is, is something that's shared between the living world and animals probably do have it, humans too have it, but then there are changes in humans' language primarily and, and development culture subsequent to language that that changes. Um, do you do you find that idea convincing or, or is there room for... I do share that. I mean, it's quite a difficult area because when you're talking about consciousness, you never know when you're, as it were, making empirical arguments on the one hand or making arguments that can be solved in the armchair or can be addressed in the armchair. For example, the question is which creatures are actually conscious? Which creatures have the lowest form of consciousness, mere sentience? Well, we can't tell that. Um, we can't interview paramecium to find out if it does feel a tingle or a twitch and so on. And we can't even interview um, you know, higher animals in, the, in this respect. So the question of which beasts are conscious um, is certainly an, it's an empirical question, but alas, probably not accessible to being answered. We usually have to infer consciousness from behavior. And even then, um, 
you may have the same behavior with and without consciousness. For example, a creature can be photosensitive without and therefore respond to the light without being aware of the light. So that it is a bit of very difficult area. But an area that's perhaps less difficult is comparing the consciousness of um, human beings with other exotic megafauna um, like um, chimpanzees, elephants and whatever. And there you do at least have behavioral cues. For example, the way we behave uh, is, could only be explained by our genuinely being conscious of ourselves in a very complex way and being conscious of others in a very complex way. So when, for example, people say, we well, you know chimpanzees do seem to have a sort of religious sense. You know, they do odd things, which indicates they may well have a, some sense of religion. Uh, you say, okay, and just remind me, was the Council of Trent, which took 15 years, uh, did they have a Council of Trent and did they sort of make documentation and so on? See, it, me, it implies that any kind of uh, looking at the difference between ourselves and beasts needs to take account really of what we get up to and of the way we get up to it, which is totally different from that of other beasts. They aren't institutions in the way we have institutions, even though that wonderful primatologist Franz de Waal talks about chimpanzee politics and so on and so forth. I don't think he persuades me that they have politics in the way that we have politics, because we are above all explicit animals. We make uh, uh, what we're doing, the meaning of what we're doing, the world we live in, explicit to ourselves and others. And that kind of explicitness doesn't seem to pervade even uh, the lives of our nearest primate kin. There is a bit of a danger in sort of anthropomorphizing morphizing um, animal behavior. Like I think language is a prime example. There are these huge industries of trying to teach uh, language to chimps. And and if you do look at it from from far enough, it does look like they're doing something that resembles a complex communication system. But when you get down to the mechanism of it, uh, it doesn't look at all like animals of anything like a recursive linguistic structure to them. It, it doesn't take off from those initial, as it were, modes of signification that they can be taught. I mean, one's always got to be careful because people say, well, hang on a moment. You're not only setting the exam, you're marking the exam papers and you're bound to bring yourself out top. You know, actually, I don't believe we are top. I don't I think we're incommensurate. We can't be compared with other animals. But it seems to me that there is good evidence independent of the fact that we're marking the exam papers, that the lives of non-human animals are so fundamentally different from our own lives the way we structure our lives. Um, one of the big differences is how we relate to tensed time, how we have a very complex past, which ends up as chronicles and histories, but more interestingly, how we have a future. The future doesn't exist. The future is woven out of entertained possibilities. And yes, it's possible some animals can be seen as sort of entertaining possibilities. Nicola Clayton's talked about scrub uh, about jays having this kind of sense, but they don't have a full-blown future tense in which they locate future possibilities. In, in my most recent book, I talk about post-tensed time. That's the time of the calendar, of the diary, when, as it were, the future has become sedimented into some kind of spatial structure, which we all dip into. So I'm going to meet Asher at 10 o'clock on, I forgot the date today, but you know what I mean? I, 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 I was going to meet you and it's set there in the diary, it's set out in space, you know, and that kind of structured future is the culmination of a very elaborate sense of tensed time, which is not present in um, other organisms. Right, yeah, I mean, it's not only that we seem to have this unique sense of time, but then we also develop rituals like calendars to, to keep track of it and create social dependencies based on it. Very much so. And ritual is quite important. And, and coming back to your point about the difference between us and beasts isn't just the posh things like operas. It's the simple things like dinner. And if you think about, if you think about feeding in animals versus dining in us, there are so many differences in our dining, cooking, bringing the ingredients all over the place, but it includes also the ritual surrounded by, that, that surround dining. You know, we all meet for Christmas or whatever, um, or we meet for somebody's birthday. 
this kind of ritualization of eating um, it shows how even something as primitive as sort of shoving food in your mouth, in our case, has become something very complex related to a whole uh, landscape of meanings. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so coming back to to a naturalistic naturalistic explanation, um, there has been a lot of movement in in cognitive science, for example, to uh, in the embodiment, embedded, extended, possibly extended theories, uh, to sort of overcome what you describe in Neuromania and Darwinitis, where you don't kind of see personal identity. And I know personal identity is still a very contentious topic, but you don't see personal identity as exclusively rooted to the brain. You see it as in the dynamics between the brain and the body, the body and the environment, so on and so forth. Is that sort of convincing you a little bit towards the naturalistic side or giving you hope towards yes well i'm very glad people have discovered the body it was quite handy it was quite nearby actually i'm surprised it took them so long to discover it but this is clearly a reaction against computational theories of the mind and the notion that we are to be understood by what's going on in the intracranial darkness but suddenly the whole body is one and that, that's certainly the case but again i'm more than a body um at the moment i as it were, become aware of things other than me, and I'm aware of them all the time, the more, the moment I share that awareness and our collective awareness is woven into a human world, we haven't left the body behind, but we've left, we've broken out of the boundaries of the body. So the embodied mind, at least as an advance on the embrained mind, thank you very much, great, but actually uh, our minds are worlded in many ways. And I think, um, uh, and that world isn't just the world of rocks and trees, it is a massive collective human artifact uh, which we inhabit. So thank you for rediscovering the body. It was, you know, it was, it was pretty handy, um, but I don't think it takes us all the way there to recovering what consciousness, human consciousness and pers personhood is. Right. Do you have any intimations as to what the right view looks like? No, a, a really good question. I mean, my feeling is that the important thing is what Wittgenstein once said is don't think, look. I mean, you can't look without thinking or think without looking. And it seems to me what we've got to do all the time is just to remind ourselves about the kind of creatures we are. So in a sense, a philosophy of personhood, one that's appropriate for humanism, needs to look at the extraordinary nature of persons. How if you unpack pretty well anything we do, it's got a huge hinterland. Uh, and I, I guess that's the way forward. As for explanation, I mean, I cannot explain consciousness. Clearly, the brain has an important role. Chop my head off and my IQ falls a few figures. That's certainly true. Um, so the brain is definitely a necessary condition. Being embodied, thank you, yes, is a necessary condition. A standalone brain wouldn't really have much to be brainy about. Um, but the question then is, yes, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And that gap between the necessary and sufficient conditions of being a conscious subject, being a person. That gap, I think, I don't know we've made any progress uh, in understanding, nor indeed where we would think the progress would lie. Because we've got huge problems at absolutely the basic level. If you think about what's happening in physics at the moment, I'm, my latest book is I'm looking very critically at the failure to notice explicitness as absolutely central to human beings. But if you look in the mirror, Theoretically, you can see, see three things. You can see an object, a thing. You can see an organism breathing away there. And then, you, in my case, you see a bloke. So you have this three in one, you know, the blob, the beast, and the bloke. And the theory is, if you're a naturalist, is you can somehow explain how the organism came out of the matter and how the conscious bloke came out of the organism. Well, we have, we're aware terribly of, of, of the difficulty of understanding how life arises out of uh, lifeless matter. We have even greater difficulty of understanding how um, life gives rise to consciousness. But actually, we have an even bigger problem of thinking about the thing, the blob in the mirror. Because if you think of current views in physics as to what is the, are the fundamental constituents of matter, they've lost their location. They basically have dissolved, they've lost their sort of um, materiality. 
most for, for most physicists now, atoms are a thing of the past. They have they're not discrete, and uh, basically they're not divisible. You know? every week there's a new particle. So we have no understanding of how if um, what physics tells us is the truth about the material world, how macroscopic objects like you and me emerge. We have no way of understanding that. So our trouble, if you like, our problem in understanding the nature of what we are begins a long way back. It doesn't begin with trying to explain how the blob of stuff became the beast and the beast became the person. It actually begins with understanding how the blob of stuff arose. Discrete blob, macroscopic and so on. But there is no physics that gets anywhere near to that. So materialists have huge problems. The biggest problem is macroscopic objects like themselves. Yeah. Right, right, of course. Uh, so if you take if you take sort of a classic reduction emerges schema of it, um, then then I think the reply would be something like, well, you have all these levels where you can explain the dynamics within them. I know there's ontological problems in physics, of course, but you can explain uh, relativistic theory. You can explain quantum mechanics. Uh, you can't, you, maybe you can explain the transition from physics to chemistry and then chemistry to biology and so on and so forth. There might be, there might be sort of explanatory problems that we don't have all the vocabulary, the, the frameworks, the theory to describe where the person emerges in this, in this scheme and where, where everything can be rooted. Uh, but that's a sort of explanatory problem. That's a sort of limit of our imagination of the problem. But but ontologically, it must all be connected. It, it must be the case that I'm not kind of making this argument; I'm just outlining it. But um, it must be the case that that biology ultimately reduces to chemistry and chemistry to physics and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, it seems to me that there's two positions there. One is a a matter of how well we can explain it, maybe an epistemological question, and the other is a ontological question. And if you take one position, you're sort of still working within the naturalistic paradigm. Um, and if you take the other position, maybe you're trying to say that, no, the whole view of looking at it as, as emergent levels is wrong. Um, do you fall anywhere in that spectrum? I think as I've got older, I got in deeper and deeper trouble, really, in the sense that these none of these paradigms seem to work. I mean, even, for example, uh, the transition from physics to chemistry Okay, possibly okay. Some chemistry, some very simple chemistry. The transition from uh, chemistry to some very simple biochemistry, if you're looking at particular processes and so on and so forth. But think of something like the cell. I mean, you've got the soup and the scaffolding. You've got this fluid and you've got this stuff that's neither, that, 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 that is a kind of structure within the cell. And of course, you've got things like semi permeable membranes that sort of you know, run with both horses as you were and it just seems to me we cannot even explain how cells arise out of biochemistry i mean you will have seen the diagrams of what goes on in a cell and the thing is they're happening side by side but they can't be separated so they've got to be together but they've got to be apart and this kind of huge problem just at the level of the cell never mind at the level of macroorganisms like you and me um indicates that okay, people think we're going to crack it, but actually we're not getting any closer in reality. More and more details that refuse to add up together to the big picture, even at the cellular level. Uh, I'll be, be interested to know what you think about that. I mean, do you think that's fair? I, I, like, I do, I do. Because I think even, even the strongest emergentist uh, would admit that this is just kind of a nice metaphor. Uh, obviously, reality is packed into these nice sort of here's where something ends and here's where something begins um, maybe it's just an organizational scheme but but i get what you mean um with biochemistry and the origin of life i wouldn't know where to begin i think it's, there's just so much mystery there that uh, there's a million viewpoints and there's there's a lot of people really smart people who have different things to say when it gets to higher levels then i think we're completely lost uh when it gets to the thing when it gets to things like economies and political systems 
Um, Absolutely. And often if you say that, people say, oh, well, in the 19th century, they thought there was a stuff called life force. And in the 18th century, they thought there was stuff called phlogiston. And I think you're an old phlogiston flogger, aren't you? You know, you're believing in things. But actually, if you look at the current real and existing problems, one's not saying I need to invoke some mysterious force. All I'm saying is the forces that you invoke get nowhere near to generating a cell, never mind a beast like you and me. And never mind a beast like you and me that's conscious of itself and talks about beasts like you and me. And then... Well, I mean, even if you go towards the other, other direction of that, uh, I think math is a serious problem for a naturalist. Uh, the, the origins of mathematical knowledge, what, what is mathematics? Do you take a Platonist view? Do you take a constructivist view? Um, is a pretty serious problem. That is, I find, very interesting, isn't it? I mean, Pythagoreanism seems to have come back mainly because people cannot find a good way of realizing the equations. So everything works very nicely, thank you, mathematically. Uh, and thank you for um, the lovely models. Thank you for the terrific predictions. Thank you for the mobile phones, as a result of which, you know, I could talk to you 3,000 miles away without raising my voice. All of that has been generated by mathematical models. But it doesn't mean to say that physics is giving us metaphysics. I think that's that's the big um, the big mistake, um, and when it does give it metaphysics, or as you imply, it tends to be a Pythagorean metaphysics. People say ultimately what we have is mathematical structures. Well, mathematical structures—that's how much, without saying how much of what. Structure. Well, a structure has to be constructed. Forms have to have contents. So, I mean, there's a wonderful book by James Ladyman, I don't know if it's called Everything Must Go. And he is very witty about us seeing atoms, seeing the world atomic level, little micro bangings between little billion balls and so on. And we've gone beyond that. The trouble is we've gone beyond and everything is dissolved into mathematics. Very interesting, I'm just reading a book, or just finished a book by Frank Close about the Higgs boson. And he's a serious theoretical physicist himself, friend of Higgs and so on. And he says, essentially, we're getting the maths right. You know, with the Higgs boson, we've got the maths of the core theory, the standard model, pretty well sorted. However, what it means, substantially, that's for natural philosophy, he says, which is very interesting. So I, 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 my, my feeling is, I mean, in relation to maths, in, in Book on Time, I devoted a whole long chapter on um, uh, mathematically, the significance of mathematical models. And there's three ways of looking at maths. One is that it's a useful tool. The second thing, a little bit more ambitious, is that mathematical entities really exist. And then you have your industrial strength, Pythagoreanism, which has essentially the world consists just of mathematical entities. And quite a lot of physicists uh, I have felt almost pushed to that last Pythagorean uh, view that um, what is fundamental are mathematical structures, which of course is, to me, is nonsense. Uh, I think you and I are as fundamental as any mathematical structure, uh, certainly as real. You're right. You're right. It's, it's so difficult to wrap your brain around that idea. Um, and then there, there's even a further problem where even if you discover or if you move towards further clarification on that then there's the problem of making sense of why we have the ability to grasp that like the the epistemology of math and the reality of math are two different questions and they both need to be answered absolutely yes quite that it's a useful tool epistemology thank you uh, that it's actually tells us what is out there no thank you i, I did a podcast with craig calendar the other day and I think he has sort of the same idea about time where there's a, there's a physical picture of time and there's confusion there. And then there's also a cognitive picture of time and, and which tells you about why we're the type of creatures that have the kind of experience of time that we do. And, and they are kind of separate questions Like you really do need to do both the physics to get clear on physical time and the psychology and cognitive science to get clear on why, experience, why we experience time the way that we do. Very much so. I mean, because what physics does to time is nothing short of disgraceful. I mean, fancy saying something like E equals MC squared. Hang on a moment. E equals energy equals matter times the speed of light squared. Okay, let's look at the speed of light. So we take light and we extract from, him, from it its transition in space over passage of time. So we've 
what strange things we've done with time to arrive at these equations. They work mathematically, fantastic, thank you. Um, but actually, they're so remote from what time is. Um, you know, they, they have no shame, physicists, in multiplying time by the square root of minus one, or what, multiplying time by itself. I mean, imagine multiplying a bargain break weekend by itself. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a period of time. So clearly there's a huge distance between what little t is and what scientists can do with little t to, to our all collective benefit and what time is. I mean, one of the big tendencies, of course, is to spatialize time. And there's lots of reasons why we spatialize time. And the most obvious reason is the way we measure time. Pretty well, all methods of measuring time from the very beginning have been um, sp involved spatializing it. If you look at a sundial time, the passage of time becomes the movement of a shadow over a period. Um, if you then move on to an ordinary clock on the kitchen, you can see five minutes is a particular movement of, a, of, of, of the minute hand over a clock face. So we spatialize time. There's many other reasons why we spatialize time. But the consequence of that is we then feel we can treat time like a, uh, just as another quasi-spatial dimension. And so we have the idea of four dimensions. And because time is the newcomer, you know, he's the d'Artagnan to the three musketeers, you've got three spatial dimensions, then in comes this latecomer, um, time becomes spatialized. Um, and that clearly is a total misrepresentation of time, but it works well, thank you. No, thanks for the physics and thanks for the, you know, all those things, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, wherever time may line up, end up in physics, I don't know, I have my suspicions, but I don't know. Um, I, you can't dismiss the manifest image of time. That That is certainly true. If we know anything to be true, we do have subjective experience. There is a manifest world out there. And I, I like your use of the manifest image from Wilfred Sellers, the contrast between the manifest image and the scientific image. Wilfred Sellers, I felt, was too generous to the scientific image. He made two points. One is that the manifest image is a continually being reformed, sorry, reformed by the scientific image. And the other is they are, you know, two equals. And I don't think they are. Because if you think what's happening in CERN, the scientific image of matter is all those crazy things that, you know, they see in CERN. But in order to see those crazy things, they have to get trains. Macroscopic physicists have to build a macroscopic tunnel. They have to have macroscopic meetings. And all of those things, none of which are captured by actually what's going on in that Large Hadron Collider. Um, so in a way, the manifest image still remains totally in place for all our days. Um, and it's, 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 it's not something, as it were, we can transcend, grow out of, get beyond. Um, science, you know. <laughs> I was just going to say, and, and so the science, scientific image is a very, very useful tool. I mean, there's a big, interesting question to say, gosh, how does it manage to be so useful while being metaphysically so deranged? I mean, that's a really important question. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is a very refreshing part of your ideas that like, I think one benefit of having this kind of position is it can be used to then then and critically look at bad philosophy, at, at bad ideas that are going sort of too far unreasonably. Um, I mean, transhumanism comes to mind without being too critical towards the transhumanists. <laughs> I think transhumanism is, trouble is, is based on a faulty notion um, that either everything is information or that at least conscious experience is information. And that information can be realized biologically as it is in the brain, or it can be realized non-biologically when you can deposit, as it were, the information content of the brain on something a bit more enduring and a bit more replicable. I mean, that's the fantasy. So that Talis protects himself by extracting the information that is his consciousness from his brain and then uh, loading it up onto silicon and then replicating it as many times as uh, to keep him going forever. I mean, the trouble with that is I don't think that material objects or um, are information. I mean, one of the problems is the word information has been expanded beyond its original meaning. So the original meaning is information is something that passes between two conscious subjects. You kindly inform me 
of the date of our meeting and I'm re I receive that bit of information. Following Shannon and Weaver's wonderful work in the 1940s, they said, well, actually, you can quantify information. It's about the resolution of uncertainty. Great. But they did point out that actually not, that's not information in that engineering sense is not information in everyday sense. And I give an example in one of my books. I can say, you know, supposing I'm generating alphabet and, and letters of the alphabet randomly, genuinely randomly, then any letter of the alphabet comes up delivers five to between five and six bits of information, one out of 26. Okay. Um, now, supposing I ask you, are you, uh, will I die tomorrow, doctor, or will I not? And there's two options. So you get one bit of information. You will die tomorrow. Oh, thanks. That's one bit of information. So you can see how uh, um, Shannon and we were quite right. So you mustn't confuse information with things that have meaning. So the random letters of uh, the alphabet, okay, each letter carries five bits of information, six bits of information. The, uh, the response to my question whether I'm going to live or die tomorrow to the doctor carries only one bit of information. So you can see there is a total disconnection between information as we it, it, as, as we understand it uh, and, and information in the engineering term. But that was overlooked by people who then ran with the information idea. And you end up with people, really good philosophers like David Chalmers, saying that every time there is a causal event, then there's an exchange of information. Or ultimately somebody like John Wheeler, brilliant physicist, who says it equals bit, the sum total of the universe is basically a pile of information. But of course, it isn't information, not information in the sense that, that, that matters. But it's a good way of getting across the mind-brain barrier if you say that what's happening in the world is information, what's happening in the brain is information, and what's happening in your conscious information, you haven't got any barriers to cross. You can cross all these boundaries without any kind of metaphysical passport. And um, it's a shame uh, because I think Myth information, as I've called it, has dominated so much of our discourse in metaphysics and particularly in uh, the philosophy of mind. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, just the idea that you you can take a snapshot of the brain and capture everything about personhood is is too. I mean, maybe it's right. Maybe maybe I'm wrong totally, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to be the first one to to have that done on. And also, if, if you were, if, if, as it were, the snapshot was picked up, first of all, my brain at T1, being a material object, is confined to T1. So it doesn't actually have a future or a past. You may say its future or past is, as it were, baked in uh, through its state. But actually, you can't have me at T1 and me at T2 in a particular state of the brain. So when I arrive uh, as a result of transmutation or whatever it is, there is just a present tense. What's more, I'm not attached to a world. There's no world there. Never mind a uh, world of people, no world of, of, of objects. So uh, I've always found it difficult to understand um, what you're waking up to, who is waking up, what that waking up consists of, and what you know, it just seems to me that um, not only is it wrong about neural activity being inverted commas information, it's wrong about where we are at a particular moment in our lives, what it is to be an individual at a moment in their life. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, even, even we can take a clue from, from how much computation a digital computer needs to theoretically stimulate, simulate uh, a human mind compared to how little computation we have and we manage to go by just fine. That, that ought to give you a clue that, well, there's something going on that, that isn't completely captured in in trying to take a information snapshot. Uh, and those things probably have intimate ties with, with things like subjective conscious experience and personal identity. And until we figure out very reliable theory about these things, I think we should be very careful and, and mindful of the ethical constraints at hand. Very much so. I mean, we're all impressed by how computing has developed. I read, read a, in a lovely article by Tim Crane, uh, that uh, whether it's how accurate that is, but the phone I have in my hand, as it were, has more computing power than the total computing power available in the whole world in 1965 when I was a medical student. I mean, so you think, wow, and Moore's law is going to be broken by quantum computing, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not about computing power. It's about something totally different. And I think a, a lot of people sort of believing in conscious machines 
believe the metaphor. So when they say Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, no, he didn't. Basically, the software manufacturers beat Gary Kasparov. The poor machine had no idea what it was doing. Uh, you know, no sense of competition, no sense of triumph. It, well, it wasn't doing anything. It was merely a conduit for the genius of the, of the computer scientists who make it. In the same way, yes, I mean, a pocket calculator doesn't do calculations. I use it to do calculations. A telephone doesn't make telephone calls. I use it, you know. But this tendency to ascribe to machines the functions we use them for makes it seem as if there could be standalone conscious machines. Yeah. I mean, most AGI systems, AI systems in general, uh, somewhere down the road, you have to sneak some data in. You have to give it some original content to start working on. Um, I don't see a way out of that. <laughs> it, they're, they're not self-organizing systems like humans seem to be. Now, that's interesting. So in a sense, you have to, even if you were able to transplant your brain from the wetware to the silicon, it would still have to have some input from an outside of sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, what counts as what's going on in a computer isn't content in the way that what's going on in us is content. Um, there's, there's this idea that there is something called representation taking place in computers, but there's no representation without presentation, without that which is present, and nothing is present to a computer. The computer in, in a room isn't in a room like you and I are in a room. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think the reason it can sometimes be frustrating is because I think there are, there are really great applications to brain-machine interfaces. Like I think really tremendous applications. And I'm, I'm sure with your medical career, you, you know far better than I. Uh, people can be helped with sensory motor problems, with, with, with limbs that have been damaged. And I, to me, that's a far more appealing idea of that'll actually help humanity rather than sort of roll our dice with, the, <laughs> with these intimate parts of our mind. I think that's true. It has a particular poignance for me because in the 80s and 90s and in the, the noughties, I was involved in neurological rehabilitation. That was my main, main area of interest. And we began with spinal cord stimulation for patients with multiple sclerosis. And there you were using what remained of the spinal cord, um, as it were, essentially um, trying to restore its function. Um, but towards the end, we were involved in transcranial magnetic stimulation for patients with stroke. Didn't work, by the way. And very few of the things I did did work. And I used to say to my team, Look, true science is full of disappointment. Only charlatans win a prize every time. So we, we, we never seemed to pull anything off that was great. But um, our idea was not, as it were, replacing uh, the brain or whatever, but is, is a prosthesis uh, which is attached. And I'm very impressed by some recent work on, on spinal cord stimulation for spinal injury. And the stuff I think you were referring to with people who are, you know, have got problems with limb movement and so on, I mean, that is a potential future, but it's still a person who's using this equipment, who's trained themselves to use it, uh, and who's using it in a world to do things they want to do that has meaning for them, like walking along the road to the shops or whatever. Right, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a fundamental shift in how you look at it. It's not so much augmenting the mind into a machine. It's, it's using machines to aid human life, to be complementary to exactly exactly yes yes quite yes and in the end it's just a it's a development of the walking stick <laughs> yeah it's just the normal business of technology exactly exactly yeah yeah okay um shifting gears a bit uh so we've we've talked a lot about naturalism naturalistic views uh what about aesthetics uh how did you become interested in in aesthetics and, and art and poetry I mean, to me, art is absolutely central to human life. Nietzsche once said, without music, life would have no meaning. And a slight exaggeration, but, you know, it's pretty close. And poetry, to me, is a way of transforming all our normal modes of discourse into an extraordinary dance and a way of unpeeling our gaze. So all of those things are abs absolutely central uh, to my life. I've published poetry, as you may know. Um, so there's no doubt about it. Art is a way of dealing with what I call the wound in the present tense. Essentially, um, at any given moment, we're, we're always en route. We're always traveling. We're never arriving. So even that wonderful moment, you know, you go on holiday, you 
arrive on the beach, you unpack all the kit. There you are, you're going to play cricket on the beach. And, you know, it, the dynamism never stops. In other words, the moment eludes you all the time. It's something I've called the difficulty of arrival. People say it's better to arrive hopefully than, sorry, better to travel hopefully than to arrive, but that's because of the difficulty of arrival. And in art, it seems to me, there is a possibility of arrival by bringing so many things together. So a book which has a beginning, a middle and an end, it has motifs that refer back and so on. You get a kind of rich stasis. With music, you get a motif that is signaled at the beginning and um, is still there and still important uh, at the end. And behind all that is form. Form is static in a sort of way, but an unfolding form clearly is dynamic. So for, for me, in many ways, art, as well as being instructive and all the other things, is a way of dealing with this, as it were, intrinsic, inescapable dynamism of our experiences and bringing things to a halt, not by freezing them, but by having a sort of dynamic equilibrium. Um, and that's why, um, of course, it means many other things as well. My wife and I have been reading the whole of Trollope's big novels, and I, I read them out, and she kindly does the ironing, and so we divide the labour between, between us. And essentially, it matters so much to us that not only the novel at any given moment, but this novel over a period of time, and then the whole dozen novels we've read since the beginning of shutdown, uh, lockdown, all of they come together, giving you a sense of personal temporal depth the ability to see a large and round world, which goes beyond the moment where you're flittering from one thing to the next. So that's why it's important to me. And that's why I get a bit cross when people think that neuroscientists can explain um, uh, art. You know, they, you, you, they say, ah, oh, music, what does music do? Oh yes, it stimulates the reward pathways, the dopaminergic pathways. Oh, yippee, but then so does sex and so does cocaine. So is J.S. Bach really the Hugh Heffer of the, 19th, of the 18th century? You know, was he just basically purveying reward? And of course it wasn't. It's something more profound than that. And you can't understand art as a response, your experience of art as a response to a stimulus. It goes much deeper than that. You know, our love of what's going on in Trollope at the moment is associated with the time we've been reading together. It's associated with our, our experience of this man and our thinking about him and all the novels he's written and the larger sense of Victorian infrastructure within which he wrote. Um, so to reduce art as a response to a stimulus has always seemed to me to be um, missed the point. There's a really nice uh, literary critic who's got into neuro aesthetics and he's very interested in a particular um, response uh, within the brain. Gosh, I've forgotten it's... Um, P400, it's 400 milliseconds delay and it's positive. And it, it, it's a measure of surprise. Um, and he looks at that in relation to Shakespeare. There's a famous line of Shakespeare when Coriolanus said, he godded me. Now God is obviously a, 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 a noun and he's turned it into a verb, functional shift. And he said, that's part of the surprise of Shakespeare, functional shift. And you know what? If you measure people's electrical activity, you find essentially that you have this P400, it's a surprise. And I point out to him, you get the same surprise when you accidentally tread in some dog dirt. You know, it's the same surprise. Um, the brain isn't, well, the reason why what Cor Coriolanus said, it's because what's happening in the play and what you think about Coriolanus and what you think about Shakespeare and so on. It's, it's not about a response to a stimulus. And in many ways, art liberates us from the present moment, but also doesn't, as it were, exclude us from the present moment. That's the great mystery of art. I mean, the, 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 there, there is this weird thing that happens with it where it, 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 it's not constrained by a sense of time, but it's also not ephemeral in some sense. Like your artistic experience may take you out of the experience of here and now, but it doesn't last forever. I think that's one of the, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that in many ways is, is one of the sort of limitations of art. You know, you go to a fantastic performance of the Ring Symphony, Ring Cycle, uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle, and then out you come, and suddenly you're queuing in the uh, cloakroom for your coat, and then you're on the bus, and then you're thinking, gosh, tomorrow I've forgotten to do something, and so on. So there is something ephemeral about art, you're absolutely right, but perhaps within those ephemeral moments, it gives you something that transcends those moments, uh, even if it itself is washed away 
by the onward dynamism of our lives and our consciousness. Do you, do you think the emotion affect part of art is a necessary condition that uh, for it to be qualified as art, it needs to emotionally invoke you in some sense? I think emotion is important, but there are different kinds of emotion. So the anger one feels at a character in a novel is totally different from the anger you feel when someone's really, you know, annoyed you or someone slammed a door. And, you know, all of that is a totally different kind of anger. Uh, the anger you experience when you think of a character you really dislike, who's annoying a character you like, they are different kinds of emotions, I think. There are also emotions that are sought out. Um, you know, we seek emotions for their own sake in art, don't we? Um, so the anger I feel uh, at a character who's annoying, it's a sort of an elective anger. You know, I don't have to uh, feel that anger. Whereas if somebody slams a door on my finger, well, that anger is scarcely elective or if somebody really annoys me. Um, so in a way, we, we sometimes rehearse our emotions as well, don't we? I mean, this is a view of Aristotle's view that we sort of re rehearse our emotions in art. Um, but it's funny, I'm thinking how much emotions matter to the artistic experience. The thing that matters to me about art is spreading out from the present moment, the sense of uh, that the world is big, it's vast, it's deep. Um, and that's not necessarily the same, not so, it doesn't necessarily map onto any emotion at all. And um, there's a lovely description of War and Peace by E.M. Forster, the English novelist, saying that you know, uh, so many things are gathered up, people, hunts, huntsmen, bridges, rivers, and gradually it adds up to a kind of music. You're gathering up, uh, as it were, a whole nation, a whole slice of collective humanity, which you're allowed to see. Um, and that may correspond to an emotion of joy, but not the kinds of emotions perhaps we encounter in everyday life. Do you then notice a difference between, say, your experience of a piece of art and your experience of, of a piece of philosophy or, or a piece of science? Um, to me, I mean, there are marked differences. Like uh, For a long time, I thought that the difference is just motion, that one uh, I mean, when you're reading philosophy or something particularly interesting, sure, you're moved emotionally. But when you get down to the very fine points of understanding something, uh, there isn't a lot of emotion involved there. It, it's, you're trying to wrangle the emotion to get to the clarity at, at hand. Um, but art has that advantage, where art may not have that kind of robustness to it, but, but you can't be moved by philosophy in the sense that you can be moved by art. Gosh, I mean, you've really touched something that's preoccupied me endlessly. Because in many ways, a philosopher theoretically does try and get a synoptic view of the world, tries to stand back and see things. The trouble is the view is often featureless. So if you're talking about matter, very much in that view, it says matter equally mind. So as you get more and more synoptic in philosophy, so you get less and less content. In contrast, something like poetry, um, Louis McNeese, uh, said that the point of poetry is to celebrate the drunken variousness of things. So you want to get hold of the absolute incredible richness, even that can be unpacked out of something small. And there was a nice dialogue between Goethe and somebody whose name I've forgotten. Uh, and, and somebody said to Goethe, do you know, why do you write these occasional verses, you know, verses for people's marriage and verses on the birth of a child? He said, you know, why don't you go for the big story? And he said, well, look, if I write a poem and it's a good poem and it's a true poem about a blackbird singing, I'll strike to the heart of creation. So there is that kind of hope that in poetry, by focusing beautifully and honestly and sincerely on something small, you will get a kind of deep picture, possibly big picture. I think one needs both philosophy and poetry having said that. You need the big picture, which may be a bit of a desert, a desert of concepts, mind, mind, matter, emergence, and all that sort of stuff. And you need poetry just to really absolutely unpeel your gaze at some particular thing and perhaps connect it with other things. Absolutely. I mean, I know people have tried sort of hybrid, trying to write philosophy poetically and so on and so forth. I think Nietzsche did that to, to a great extent. Um, <laughs> But what are your thoughts about that? I mean, to some extent, I'm ecstatic about it. It sounds like a great idea. But then to some to some degree, I kind of want a separation. I want my 
my art as my art and my philosophy is my philosophy to be able to get the best of both worlds and and maybe i'd rather just read both and, and be engaged in both worlds i think i've come to that conclusion but one would like to be you know there's um Kierkegaard saying that you know one should aim ultimately for the unity for some kind of unity and that uh, to be x plus y plus z doesn't seem quite as entirely satisfactory so it's very much a question of but having said that i'm inclined to agree with you i'm happy to read and do poetry on one day and read and do philosophy on another day um yeah yes yeah but yes I know what I think of the phrase in Kierkegaard, which is purity of heart is to will one thing. And you'd like to think there was a point of convergence in all one's activities. Um, but even at this level of elective activities like philosophy and poetry, there isn't that quite that point of convergence, except in some philosophical poets. I mean, Rilke is a supreme example. A thought that I've had, um, this is just honestly a very rough thought so please take it with a grain of salt but but is that through art you can get this possibility of a transcendental experience where you're it's truly an embodied experience and there's this narrative flow to it where you're moving through an experience that you might not with with a piece of philosophy but i think another another trade-off is that with a piece of philosophy or science there is greater prospects of combining knowledge together to build build a paradigm where I can see all of Western philosophy in as a whole. I mean, it'd be hard, but I can see how different paths are responding to different paths and how we got to the landscape that we did. I wouldn't know how to begin to do that with, with a literary movement. Uh, I don't know if I would want to do that with a literary movement. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly, yes, yeah. But hmm. there are those moments, aren't there, where you really do feel a sudden expansion our consciousness. It's a funny moment for me. It's like missing a step at the bottom of the staircase. You go, ooh, you know, it's a funny, strange feeling. And it does, uh, yes, um, but there still remains the problem of genre. I mean, and the quarrel between genre. Um, Paul Valery, one of my great heroes, was very preoccupied about this. You know, he wrote great poetry, spent five years writing one particular 500-line poem, La Jeune Parc, but he also wrote philosophy and thought about philosophy. It was very critical of philosophers, um, mainly that they sort of took on board their own language without looking at it critically. He was a sort of Wittgensteinian without being aware of it. Really. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's the same story with naturalism and, and religious history until we have a better idea. We might as well keep considering both and see where the road leads us. <laughs>